This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. All right, guys. Welcome to Tax Tuesday. This is a special Valentine's edition. Okay, Elliot, how are you doing there, brother? I'm doing very well. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody out there. For Valentine's Day here in Vegas, we had snow, which is weird. Yeah, a little bit of flurries. Every now and again, it does that in Vegas and dropped 20 degrees and decided to do that. My name is Toby Mathis, and Elliot's going to be from the control room running everything today. So I'm going to hand off to uh, to Elliot. But hey, before I do, how many of you guys, this is your first Tax Tuesday? How many of you all have never been on a Tax Tuesday before? Just put in chat whether this is your first one. Well, his hands raised. Well, we got some hands raised there. Oh, look at that. So, yeah. All right. So, so, Elliot, you get to go over the rules. All right. Well, first of all, a little bit about what we do here. The whole idea is to ed- help educate clients, uh, you know, as Toby calls it, bringing the tax knowledge to the masses. And um, that's kind of our responsibility here. You send in questions and we'll see where to send the questions in here in a little bit on one of our slides. We do pick uh, from a, a vast grouping of questions that you send in, and then we'll ask a a few of them. We try and get to all the questions that we can. We also have staff on site right now uh, answering on the uh, Q&A section. So if you have questions, please feel free to open up the Q&A and submit your questions there. And then one of my colleagues will pick it up. Uh, We have several CPAs and EAs and all kinds of people there to help answer the questions. Like I said, we try and get through all the questions that we can. We do have a kind of a not a hard cutoff in an hour, but it's about an hour long program. And if we can't get to all the questions, we'll try and throw it through the Platinum Portal uh, to, to help you there as well and get you answered. Anything else you want to add there, Toby? Yeah, advance the slide. It has all the rules on the next That's one. That's a good idea. There you go. Okay. <laughs> all right. There we go. To push it. There we go. Yeah. So the, for, for, for the newbies, it's just, hey, you could ask detailed questions, not too specific to your situation. But if you're if you're seeking clarity on an, on an issue, go right into the Q&A. That's where you put it. Something says, I was told by my CPA, I can no longer take tax, uh, the home office deductions as an escort, yada, yada, yada. Like, so they're, they're already starting to do that. And we have a bunch of folks, Jared, Amanda, Dana, Dutch, Sergey, and Tanya, all sitting by answering questions all day. A bunch of accountants and attorneys, believe it or not, are sitting here and they'll answer your questions. So if you have any questions that you're burning, like, uh, or you want clarity on on an issue, we're going to go over a bunch of questions. Elliot's going to read through them all here in a second, but then you can absolutely go in and ask your specific question right on in there. Now, if it's too detailed, like you're like, hey, I filed my return last year, and I did X, Y, Z, and I want to amend it and do this. What are my, you know, what should I do? What are my steps? We're probably going to say, hey, you got to become a client because now we're giving you advice. But if you're just asking like, hey, how do I write off the vehicle? How do I do a reimbursement? Things like that. Throw it into the Q&A. And we'll go through all the questions first, and then we'll come back and start answering. The first question, if I put a short-term rental in operation in October, November, does the bonus depreciation get prorated accordingly? So we're looking whether or not we prorate from October, November for the rest of the year, or how do we handle that? We'll look into that question. Useful strategies for pulling money out of a small business tax-free, not being double taxed. A mileage deduction in a partnership. Does this go on a Schedule C? 
Number four is the expense related to the preparation of your LLC tax deductible, such as travel costs to go see a property, et cetera. Can I give my son a 1099 from my Wyoming holding company to get a tax deduction? Please talk about the $25,000 deduction for real estate investing. I think we're talking about passive losses there. Where does it apply and where doesn't it? I have only one rental single family home at this time. How should I set up my taxes on my properties? And I have two rental properties in California. I've been managing full-time since 2021. I have been working more than 700 hours per year. Do I qualify for real estate professional status? If so, what is the process at the time of filing my 2022 uh, taxes? What is cost segregation? Kind of a simplistic question, but an important one because we'll talk a lot about that. Is it more beneficial as an LLC owner to pay myself as a W-2 or a 1099 employee? What are some creative ways to save money on the gains from real estate investing? And lastly, hi, how are crypto gains taxed? When, at time of selling the crypto to convert back to cash, I have been doing short-term trading with my own account. Please advise the best strategies to minimize taxes. My hubby is W-2 and I'm a real estate professional with three rentals. Thank you. Those are the questions we're going to hit. Before that, Toby, a little uh, advertising here for his uh, YouTube channel. First off, we put our recordings of the Tax Tuesdays right on in there. But if you have any tax questions or asset protection questions, or you want to go there and fill your brain a little, I don't even know how many videos we have up there. I think it's about 400 videos since 2014. We've been running that channel. Feel free to hop in, subscribe, put the little notification on. So about three times a week, we put up new videos and you you go in there and fill your brain with a bunch of tax knowledge. But if you... Uh, like what you're hearing today and you're saying, geez, they've been doing this for years and years and years. And I want to go check out what other people, what other questions people are asking. Go By all means, they're up there on the YouTube channel. We put them up after every event. And uh, to get there, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel at uh, aba.link slash YouTube uh, for the replays and uh, all, all Anderson type material we have up there. Yeah. And uh, hey, uh, my partner, Clint, or our partner, Clint also has a channel that goes over specifically more of the asset protection stuff. So by all means, go Google Clint Coons if you want. Uh, we're all over the internet. It's kind of hard to miss us, but uh, or Patty just shared the link right there. You can pop on in there. And again, it's just if you like looking and going out and trying to find new ideas. It's uh, one of those endeavors for us that we see pays off in spades for people. If they go out there and they try to get a little bit of tax knowledge, it's it's usually a worthwhile endeavor. And you never know when you're going to run across somebody that could benefit from that knowledge. Just saying, hey, I heard this. You might want to go check it out. You might be able to help somebody out. All right. First question. If I put a short-term rental into operation in October or November, does the bonus depreciation get prorated accordingly? Good question. Let me, let me jump in because yeah. normally I get to read them and then make you answer. This is, yeah, this, go ahead. This is way more fun. Hey, this is the really cool part about bonus depreciation. Typically, when you have a uh, an asset that's being depreciated over a long term, like a 27 and a half years, 39 years, you're going to have this half yearly convention of when you put it into, into service. In other words, you're, you are prorating over the year. But when you have a personal property, like especially under the bonus depreciation, that you're accelerating the depreciation, it could be in service for one month doesn't matter one month or the full year. It doesn't matter whether you bought it in January or December. You put it into service before the end of the year, not prorated. Bonus depreciation is taken whoosh, right now. And uh, you don't have to, to spread it out. It ends up being a huge boon 
depending on your scenario. Very much so. As far as a scenario, it's going to depend on whether or not uh, those losses can be taken. If you're a real estate professional, here we have a short-term rental, so I guess it would be material participation. If you're the one managing it, less than seven days, average day, things like that, then more than likely you're going to be what we call Schedule C. It's going to be an active business. Uh, so then, yes, it's going to work to your favor, give you those losses that will go off against, uh, set off against any other income you have on your return. Yeah, and I know that there's questions in here that are going to go into cost segregation, but the easiest way, some people might be saying, what is bonus depreciation? Like anything that's 20 years or less in 2022, you could accelerate that depreciation. When I say 20 years or less, like this phone here, right? The IRS says this will last five years. Or if I went out and looked at uh, the my, my deck, that's 15-year properties, land improvement, right? So it's spread out over that many years. Under 168K, we could accelerate that and write it all off in one year. Just means that, hey, uh, this, again, I'll use my cell phone as an example. I could write it all off right now. That's the big benefit. And when you're dealing with rental properties, you do something called a cost segregation to break, break the property into its five, seven, 15-year property. Then you can accelerate that five, seven, and 15-year property and write it all off in year one. And uh, for 2022, it's 100%, which means if a 30-year property is comprised of this stuff that's like the, the carpet, the cabinets, the appliances, the the driveway that you put in, the fence that you put up, the, the, the new backyard that you put in, if it's comprised of those types of things, window coverings, you know, you, you guys know what you do, the new linoleum, putting a new paint job on all that stuff. If it's comprised of those items, you could write that all off. Now, the question is, what's the benefit to you? So if you're just a, a, a real estate investor and you have passive losses and you, you're familiar with that term, you know that passive losses only offset passive income with a couple of exceptions. And one of the exceptions is this thing called active participant in real estate. And the other one's something called a real estate professional. The active participation phases out when you hit $150,000 of adjusted gross income. It's gone. So we hear mostly we're talking about real estate professional. Otherwise, you're just taking a loss and carrying it forward. You don't lose it. But let's say that you bought a, Elliot, let's use an example, like a $500,000 property. And let's say the land is worth a hundred. So you have $400,000 of improvement there. And let's say we could write off 30% of it. So 30% of 400,000 is 120,000. That is five, seven, 15 year property. That's about right, by the way, guys, that, that's pretty pretty close to being spot on. And uh, boom, I get to take that as a, and I bonus that depreciation. I now have this big loss. And let's say I had income, positive rental income of $10,000 a year. You're not going to be paying any income tax on any of that. It's going to wipe out that, that rental income probably for the next 10 years. And that's why people use it. If you're a real estate professional, not only do you wipe out your rental income for the year, but then you could take, let's say it's a $100,000 loss in excess of all your other rental income. You're going to use that against your W-2. It's just really hard. Like you, I know there's a question here about real estate professionals, so we'll hit on it, but that's what it really boils down to. And uh, we always call it, the, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it worth doing the cost seg? Is it worth doing the bonus? What's the net benefit into my pocket? They're not free. So when you do a cost seg study, 
you know, does it cost $3,000 to save four? Probably not going to do it. If it costs $3,000 to save 30, probably going to do it, right? So you're always kind of doing that balancing test. Absolutely. And again, that's the big difference, uh, you know, doing the bonus depreciation October, November, you do get to take it all, as Toby said, immediately in that year, as opposed to if we didn't do a cost seg, then you're looking at that, you know, straight line 39 years or 27 and a half years in the case of a single family resident or something like that. And we're just not going to get nearly as much depreciation from it. All right. Let me just put a a, a quick caveat here. So I already see that people are jamming the Q&A. We've got Amanda, Jared, Dana, Dutch, Sergey, Tanya, Ander, Patty. Everybody's answering questions the best they can. And a couple of people are like, hey, I submitted a question. We are getting through to them. We're probably about 10, 15 minutes behind those questions. They're going to get answered today uh, because we don't leave until we answer them all. But there are about 45 that are in queue and they've already answered about that same amount. So uh, just be patient. If you put something in Q&A, they're getting through them. And uh, remember, they're not charging anything for it. So uh, so be patient. There's a couple of guys in the chat saying, hey, where's my answer? So uh, we'll get through it. It is Valentine's Day. Time for a little bit of patience and love. Hey, hey. Uh, we will make sure. Like, hey, Mike, go ahead and put your answer in there or your question into the uh, Q&A. We will get through to you guys, no matter what. We don't leave. So... Uh, yeah, somebody says prayers for Jeff. If you guys know that normally I have uh, Jeff Webb in here. Yeah, he's got some some stuff he's going through. So we're going to give him our prayers today. He's actually uh, hopefully doing just fine. So everybody has health issues once in a while. And we just pray for him when they do and they come back. So I have no doubt that uh, Jeff's going to kick you out of that seat, Elliot. Or maybe he'll kick me out. I would love it. <laughs> maybe, maybe he'll kick me out of mine. <laughs> so, uh, so keep going, buddy. All right. Next question. Useful strategies for pulling money out of a small business tax-free, uh, not being double taxed. Well, uh, can, I want to respond to something real quick is that yeah. there's always different ways to get money out of a business, depending on the type of business it is. So if you have a small business that's the sole proprietor, very different than if you have a small business that's an S-corp or a C-corp. And the only time you ever worry about a double tax is when you have a C-corp because they're taxed at the corporate level. If you have profits and you leave it in the corporation, they're taxed at 21% flat, no matter how much it is. It could be $10 million, it's 21%. And then if it pays that out to you in the form of a dividend, then you might pay tax on it. It's, it depends on your tax situation. If uh, if you are in the bottom couple of tax brackets, it's zero. If it's you're in the middle brackets all the way up to the top, you're at 15%. And then if you're a rich guy making lots and lots of money, you're probably at 20%. But the uh, the, the point is, is that it's only for uh, C-Corps where you ever have to worry about that double tax. And what we've found is that there's really no difference. Like if I make a million dollars as an individual versus I make a, you know, half a million as a, as a uh, individual and half a million as a C-Corp, and then I pay the entire amount that I made in the C-Corp back out to myself, it's all about the same amount of tax. It's not markedly different. I think it calculates right just under 37%, which is the top bracket. So I, I've never found it to be something that that dissuaded me. But what it does give you is C-Corps have very specific benefits. Number one, it's a flat tax. Number two, C-Corps can reimburse 100% of your medical, dental, and vision expenses 
including those of your dependents, and you don't have to report it and it's deductible to the corporation. And so depending on your scenario, that could be really, really enticing. Depending on your tax bracket, it could be really enticing to have that 21%. So if you have, like, let's say you're in a household and you have two really high income earning spouses, it might be wise in one of the, if, if you have the control of one of the businesses to make it into a C Corp so that you could pay 16% less on the federal side alone, you could cut your tax bill almost in half by doing that. And uh, it ends up being, a little bit of math strategy that you're looking at, but it, it could be a huge benefit. Now, talking about getting money out of the business. Otherwise, I'll say this, using retirement plans, you could defer a substantial amount of your income. For a guy like myself, it's up to $30,000 a year immediately that I could defer right into a 401k. And then I could put an additional, I think it's up to 73000 for somebody who's over 50. Uh, for other people, I think it's twenty two thousand five hundred that is the that you can immediately defer, and then it's twenty. Then the company can contribute on your behalf twenty five percent. If you're a sole proprietor, you could be messing around with a set plan, or it's a smaller amount, but you could still defer it right on in there. If you're a small business, you probably want to marry that to a to a retirement plan, and then of course it's writing everything off under the sun. I'm not a big fan of sole proprietorships because their audit rate is about 800 to 1,000% higher on a typical business making 100 grand a year. It's like, it's not even close. And then when they when they do get audited, which is a lot more than their counterparts, the S-Corp or the C-Corps, they lose. They lose over 94% of the time. So I just like, I'm not really interested in, in doing that. And one of the reasons why is because something like this cell phone, I wanna, I wanna pay for out of my business. If I'm a sole proprietor, I have to figure out what portion of this cell phone is being used for business and what portion is being used personally, which is, I don't know how you do that in this day and age. Like you're gonna have to track it. And if you don't track it right, then they're gonna disallow the deduction versus if I'm an S-Corp or a C-Corp or an LLC taxed as an S-Corp or an LLC taxed as a C-Corp, I can reimburse 100% of that expense under an accountable plan and I don't have to report it as the taxpayer. I mean, it makes my return so much more simple. But those are the types of things. It's things like an administrative office for your home, making sure that you're reimbursing for the actual cost of a home office. Like I'm using a home office here and my, the company can reimburse me for a substantial portion of my house. In my case, it's close to 20% which includes my property taxes, my my mortgage. I don't have a mortgage, but if I did, my some of my mortgage interest, if you have a cleaner, that part of that, my utility bill, my electric, all that stuff, my water bill, you add everything up, you say, what percentage of that house is being used for the benefit of the business? And that business can reimburse you. And it's not reported anywhere. It's not like when you're a sole proprietor and you have to do that, that crazy home office deduction where you actually have to do a special form. And then the other benefit of, of of running a business out of you know as a corporate entity versus just as a sole proprietor is you get to avoid a lot of the self employment tax. So one of the one of the sad parts of being a sole proprietor is that it doesn't matter whether you take the money out of the business or not. A hundred percent of the net profit is taxed under old age disability and survivors and Medicare. Hundred percent, and that's not a small amount. That adds up to being about fifteen point three percent in addition to your federal income taxes which is in addition to your state income taxes. So when I start seeing questions like this, useful strategies for pulling money out, it's number one, 
expense everything that's business related out of the business. Number two, it's make sure that you're the right type of business and reimburse yourself anything under the sun that you are using personally for the benefit of the business. I don't care whether it's your computer, whether you're getting your kids involved and, and, and maybe you're maybe they're getting some pay. Maybe they have a small business on the side that you're paying. Maybe you're covering for their, you know, their equipment, uh, their computers, their cell phones, their their data, all that fun stuff becomes a deduction if they're actually working for the business. And here's the here's the rub. I can be doing this for people even if they're not taking a salary. This is always a bone of contention with a lot of accountants that are like, oh, you got to take a salary to get fringe benefits. And there's no such requirement. In fact, there's technically there's not even a requirement if you're profitable in an S corp that you take a salary. That's going to make some heads explode. I know there's some CPAs out there, but the, but the, the actual rule is if you take distributions out of an S corp, you need to take a reasonable salary. But if you're just running an S corp and you're just leaving the money in there, it's blowing down and being taxed to you. Technically, you don't even have to take a, a salary unless you take the money out. So there's all these little little things out there that that are beneficial with the business that kind of makes you go one direction or another. And I'll just say this before I hand it off to you, Elliot, and get your comment. You really want to be sitting down with somebody and asking somebody who knows so that because I can look at a business, I know Elliot can do the same thing. And you start seeing, hey, you're making $25,000 or less. You're probably okay being this sole proprietor. We're willing to take the risk. Let's you know, we're not in the, the danger zone yet. You get over that twenty five, thirty to forty thousand dollars, it's like you should be an S Corp or a C Corp. And then they say, But I my accountant told me an LLC. And it's like, okay, an LLC does not exist to the IRS. We're going to tell the IRS how we want it to be treated. And you could still have an LLC that's treated as an S Corp or a C Corp, but you're probably going to want to be a corporate entity. There's no such thing as an accountable plan if you are a sole proprietor or a partner in a partnership. So you're almost always going to want to have some sort of corporate entity floating around there if you're really looking at the benefits of a small business. Yeah. And the only thing I could really add to that, just as far as retirement plans, you also, and you could do this with other businesses, but you could have a defined benefit plan. I don't know if you touched on that. That's just a lot more that one could put away, uh, just more tax savings. I I didn't. What is a defined benefit plan? What is this (laughs) weird thing in which you're discussing? Well, what Toby was talking about earlier, the other retirement plans are uh, defined contribution, uh, where we define how much the contribution is. Defined benefit goes the opposite way and says, well, we're going to define how much the the, uh, benefit is at retirement. And generally speaking, uh, it's going to allow you to put away a lot more. Let's say you could do, I don't know, 60 to 70,000 in a solo 401k. Well, defined benefit, many times we've had clients in excess of, correct me if I'm wrong, Toby, but maybe over 200,000. We had a we had a client put in over seven hundred thousand dollars in one year. There you go. Defined benefit plan. It, it's all a question of how old you are and how long you have to make up the 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 the, the nut that has to be in there to kick off the income. And a DB plan. The easiest way to think about it is we can either define what we're putting in it. Hey, you can put sixty five hundred dollars a year into an IRA. That's called a defining the contribution. Or you could say we're going to define what comes out of it. So Elliot's used to making. X number of dollars a year. When he retires, in order to get that same amount of money out of a retirement plan, we get to reverse engineer. We use an uh, an IRS actuary and they calculate, hey, you need to have $2.6 million into your plan in order to kick that income out, Elliot. And hey, you have 10 years to do it. So you can kind of do simple math and realize that's about $260,000 a year. That's about right. That's, you know, it's not quite that simple, but but that's what it really boils down to is you can you can go in reverse. And if, and if you like this topic, 
then I'd suggest you go into uh, the YouTube channel. There's something called the $100,000 a year retirement plan. It's sitting in there uh, because I actually brought an actuary on who broke down and gets into the the weeds with it. But spot on, Elliot, is that when, once you have a small business, you have access to things others don't. Because as an individual, I can't do a DV plan. I have to be associated with the business. Yeah. And then just one last comment on it is it, when I'm talking to clients about this and my other teammates, it's really, you know, do you want your tax money to go to the government or would you rather have it go to your retirement plan? And that usually makes it quite simple in their decision making. I mean, that's what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Last little things on this one is make sure, you know, there's travel expenses, there's food. In 2022, meals were 100% deductible if they were at a restaurant or from a restaurant. Your travel, make sure that you're reimbursing your mileage that you're doing for your business. Get it out of that business. You're supposed to do it before the end of the year. But obviously, as you're going on, keep doing it. I think right now, the mileage reimbursement rate is like 65 and a half cents. There's these low-lying fruit that sometimes we forget about. Make sure that you're getting them. Very good. Mileage deduction in a partnership. Does this go on a schedule C? What thank you, Toby? No, it doesn't. <laughs> Next question. No, the mileage reimbursement. It's this funky thing, I believe, where you have the unreimbursed deduction that's sitting on the partnership that gets it reduces the amount of income that flows down to the partners. That's how they take it. Because technically you're not an employee, so it shouldn't really be reimbursing you uh the expense, although I'm I'm sure that they there's a number of people that do, but technically, I don't think you're supposed to do that. So I think it's just a re- unreimbursed expense that you're going to, it's going to end up in your pocket anyway, as the partner. And that's how you're getting your mileage back. Did I, did I do that right? Or did I butcher? Yeah, no, no, you're, you're pretty much uh, on that. I would just say that the schedule C for those who get kind of confused, that that's the sole proprietorship that Toby was talking about in the last question. Uh, which we really are not a fan of, higher chance of audit, more chance of them finding something on audit, doesn't allow you reimbursements, although a partnership doesn't uh, as well, but a partnership, at least at least we're keeping you off a sole proprietorship. So Toby, do you remember from your, your research what, what audit rates were like for a partnership? Yeah, they were 0.1, like 0.01. It was, it was a fraction of a percent. They actually had an asterisk on it the last year. It's really, really, really low. What it does is they end up looking at the individual return. And if you guys haven't gone to a tax and AP event, I'd encourage you to go to one. I break down the stats. It's about five to one audits of poor people versus everybody else. So this is going to sound horrible. And on Valentine's Day, I'm probably going to get cursed for saying this. But if you don't want to get audited, don't be poor. It's, It's a sad truth because... They don't fight. They don't have the accountants. And it's just, it's horrible. But the the highest audit rates, period, are folks that are taking that earned income tax credit and that are in the lower brackets. It's just not fair. But it is about five to one. And then for partnerships and uh, and, and and S-corps and small, small corporations, small C-corps, the audit rates are virtually non-existent. And we can tell you exactly why you're going to get audited. It's not rocket science. If you're a sole proprietor, the, re- the reason you get audited is because you took a distribution and you never paid yourself a salary, right? Nine times out of 10, that's what's going to trigger it. They, they just know to look for it. And, and for partnerships, it's doing bizarre things on the partnership. It's trying to write things off and taking salaries out of partnerships that gets you audited. Can't do it. You're a partner. It's a guaranteed payment to partner. So it doesn't quite work that way. 
but there's definitely like there's the error that people would have to trigger on those. But the actual partnership returns, they're just rarely, rarely audited. All right. So we'd still be off in a partnership better off than we would a Schedule C. But as Toby pointed out, this would not go to a Schedule C to begin with. So 1065. All right. Next. Is the expense related to preparation of your LLC tax deductible, such as travel costs to see the property, et cetera? Good question. And what you're what you're really asking is there's two categories. There's startup expenses and there's uh organization. Uh, Organization expenses. Thank you. Yeah. So in, in both of them, you have up to five thousand dollars in your first year. So the expense relating to the prep preparation of your LLCs, absolutely deductible. It's going to be an organization expense, up to five thousand dollars for the year, and that includes the state fees, the registered agent fees, accounting fees, attorneys' fees. My favorite. Any of those that you could lump in there, and then uh, your travel costs going to a property would be a startup expense unless you already own the property before you set up the LLC, in which case it'd be a, a current expense. So it always comes down to, is the business operating? Is it already making income? And in real estate, it's when do you get the investment property? When did you buy it? Then it's now we can start writing things up versus is it be pre, is it before? In which case, then is it a startup expense? And then there is a little bit of a nuance between an LLC that's a partnership, for example, versus if you set up a corporation, in any event, you're going to get to write things off. And sometimes some preparers also take a little bit of a different approach. If you have some of these travel costs to look at a particular property, they may just add that to the basis of the property. Sometimes some preparers will do that because there is a some guidance that way in the publication. But all, all time, other times, as a preparer, I know I've done it, they'll put it in the startup cost that Toby's talking about. So don't be surprised if it goes to your basis as well. All right, next. We got some of uh, the tax and asset protection workshop. I don't know when the next one, February 25th. Coming yep. up here. Come on in if you want to learn about land trust, LLCs, corporations, taxes. We even do legacy planning. I tend to go over because of that. But February 25th, it's a Saturday. Take the time off and come hang out with us. Clint does a really good job of breaking down the uh, the different types of entities. The, uh, everything from Wyoming statutory trusts to land trusts, to LLCs, to using when to use Wyoming, when not to, when to use your home state, how to structure your real estate. He does a really good job on that. And then I come in and do tax and legacy planning. It's absolutely free. And I think it's worth your time. And if, you know, one of those things is we call security through obscurity. If it's not being liable in a lawsuit that, that, that gets you every now and again, you have somebody that gets taken out with a lawsuit that gets crushed. And, you know, they go to trial and they get these, you know, runaway jury. 99% of them don't get there. It's the death by a thousand paper cuts that gets you. It's the time and the anguish and the four years of suffering and having to pay lawyers or be around lawyers and stuff. So we, we've, we've taken a proactive approach to realizing that if people can't see what you have, they tend not to sue you. And so that's a big part of what we teach is here's how you can isolate liability, but here's the most important thing. Here's how you can keep from getting messed, you know, messed up. Because, hey, your taxes are probably great. It doesn't mean you want to go through an audit. Hey, your asset protection is great. It doesn't mean you want to go through a lawsuit. So let's avoid those things by being really smart and realizing they tend not to sue really poor people. They tend not to audit people within a certain category, types of businesses. Let's be those. Doesn't mean you want to. Hey, doesn't mean I'm telling you to go be homeless. I'm just saying that. 
on paper, from an attorney's perspective, make sure you don't look like an attractive target. And, uh, and we do that. Uh, we want to make sure that, that you don't put a big old bullseye on your back. Absolutely. All right. Please talk about the $25,000 deduction for real estate investing. Where does it apply and where it doesn't? I only have one rental single family uh, home at this time. This is, this is just the act of participation we were talking about a little bit earlier. So when you have passive losses, normally they only offset passive income. One of the exceptions is this $25,000 active participation. And active doesn't mean that you're a real estate professional. This just means that you are in charge. You hire the property manager. You hire whoever it is that's working on the property, right? Yet That you ultimately are the one that's the decision maker. So everybody here, if you're a real estate investor, chances are you're an active participant. And then the only question is, do you qualify for the for that extra the up to $25,000 a year of passive loss that becomes ordinary loss on your return? And there's an income phase out. So the first $100,000 you worry nothing about. And then for every $2 over 100,000, you lose a dollar of the deduction. So if you get up to $150,000 of adjusted gross income, you've lost your deduction entirely. So for every two bucks, you lose a buck. So for every dollar over 100, you go up to 150, that's $25,000 that you lose. But if you're like in the middle level and you have a $10,000 loss, let's say you make $125,000 a year and you have a $10,000 passive loss and you're an active participant on your real estate, you get to take that. So if you're making 125,000, now you're making 115. So it ends up it ends up working just great. Also, again, you know, outside of those uh, numbers, uh, there's there are things that sometimes we'll advise clients, you know, maybe make a contribution to an IRA or something like that to lower their income so they can get more in there if they have, if they're above 25,000 losses. So, you know, possibly working with a tax professional might get you to where you can take more of that 25,000. And this is before you take your standard deduction too. So like, this is going to whittle away at your, at your income tax. Okay, there was one thing somebody was was sitting here in the chat, and I think we're probably they probably kicked them off into the Q and A. But they were paying their kids by they had a corporation, and they were paying one of the spouses set up a sole proprietor, an LLC taxes a sole proprietorship or just a sole proprietorship, and they paid all of the money to their children under eighteen. You can absolutely do that, by the way, and the kids, if you did that. Uh, and they made less than this year's thirteen thousand eight hundred twenty-five. I can't remember what it was last year. Do you remember the standard deduction for single last year? I believe it was twelve thousand nine fifty. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Twelve. I, for some reason, I kept saying, oh, "God, that seems like too big a leap." But yeah, it went from like, yeah, it jumped up almost a grand. They don't even have to file a tax return. So if they're under eighteen, they not only do they not have uh, any taxes, they don't have any employment taxes, but they also don't have a requirement to pay a a, a tax or to file a tax return. So yeah, so out of your corporation or whatever your business was, you paid that, you paid your kids. Let's say you had two kids and you paid them each 10,000 bucks. You just got $20,000 tax-free that was deductible. Then somebody else asked about passive losses and what they are. Really simple. There's only two types of income that are uh, passive, rents, and then businesses in which you do not materially participate. So uh, profits from businesses. So if you're in a partnership or an S-corp and you don't do anything in the business, then t- chances are it's, it's it's passive. Very good. How should I set my taxes for my properties? 
How should I study? I have no idea what that means, but I'm going to punt this one to you, Elliot. All right. So I took it as, as Toby was saying earlier, really, we want to look at the entity first. And if it's going to be a rental property, maybe long or short-term rental, we're going to want to put that some asset protection. We're looking at an LLC, limited liability company, probably one that's what we call disregarded. Disregarded means it just doesn't file a tax return. And that might be owned by, say, a Wyoming holding. And that would be our classic structure for these types of rentals, uh, properties, if that's what you're referring to. That way, right there, just on that structure, all that income is just going to flow through to your, your 1040, unless that Wyoming holding is a partnership, in which case it would go a partnership return, but it still comes right back to your 1040, on what we call a K-1. Then as far as looking for tax bonuses or what have you, many times our clients might set up a management C corporation. And any work that you're doing on behalf of your rentals, you can now do as an employee of that C corporation. The C corporation is going to earn a fee from your rentals for providing those services. And we call it a management fee. So you'd have an actual contract between your C corporation and this LLC that holds your rental. And it might pay 10% of gross rents or something like that, that shifts income into your C corporation. That's going to give you tax savings uh, potentially on your 1040. And then in the C corporation, once it's up there, we talk about the reimbursements that Toby was mentioning earlier through the C corp, the medical reimbursement, uh, administrative uh, office through your accountable plan, cell phone, internet, things like that, as well as the 288 corporate meetings, helps you get that money out of the corporation back to you tax-free. And at the same time, it's a deduction to your C corp. So typically speaking, when we talk about properties, I'm thinking rental properties, more than likely here and how we would set up for your taxes, it's going to involve structures with these LLCs and maybe a management corporation to get our, our what normally would be our best result. Sounds good. I, I didn't know what the quality of the question was. Well, yeah, the, I just kind of, I'm kind of reading into it a little bit, but I had a feeling mm-hmm. that's where we probably were driving at. Also though, you know, more in depth on this, because you can really go a lot of ways with this as we also, we talked about earlier is if they are rentals, if you are a real estate professional or materially participating in your short-term rental, you can hit into those cost segregations, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, and bonus depreciation, things that might give you a little bit more loss and give you a little bit more tax benefit as well. I have two rental properties in California. I have been managing full-time since 2021. I've been working more than 700 hours per year. Do I qualify as a real estate professional? If so, what's the process at the time of filing my 2022 taxes? All right. So you just hit on something really important. So first off, let me give you the site for this. It's 26 USC 469 or 69C7. So you could go straight to it. So it's 469C7. And what it is, is when you have passive losses, if you don't want them to be passive, there's two exceptions. We already mentioned one of them, the active participant. The second one is, I am a real estate professional. And that's what he's asking about, or she's asking about. So this is what it boils down to. There's a two-part, one first part of a test. So I'll call it prong one is a two-part two part prong. And then there's prong two. Prong one is, do you spend 750 hours a year on a real estate trader business? And the second part of prong one is, is it more than 50% of your time that you spend in work? So your personal services. And one spouse has to meet this. So this is says, I have two rental properties in California. So we're definitely, sounds like we're in passive activity. I've been managing full-time since 2021. So I'm going to assume these are long-term rentals and that they qualify as rental activity. If it's Airbnb, a little bit different, it's even easier. But let's just assume that these are 
month-to-month rentals. Maybe they're duplexes, fourplexes, whatever they are. And they've been working more than 700 hours a year. I'm going to assume that they mean on those properties. So it's not, hey, I spend more than 700 hours a year working. Oh, and I also manage my properties. It sounds like this is what they're doing for their living, or this is what they're doing for their personal services. So under prong, the first prong, 750 hours, more than 50%, we have to know how many hours you actually spent. So it says more than 700 hours. If it's 740, you don't qualify. If it's 790, you do. If it's 751, you do. You would qualify under prong one. Prong two is, did you materially participate on your rental properties? And I would say, Absolutely, because there's there's seven different tests. One of them is 500 hours on that you spent on your properties. You spent 700 hours. You met that test. So here's what I'm going to say. This is really important. And listen to me clearly. You need to aggregate those two properties as one activity. Otherwise, you have to meet that test for each property. And so you'd have to separate out. Like it's silly. I've seen it done. The, I, the courts actually screwed this up and applied the 750 hours to each property at one point. They, they Hopefully they won't do that, but you could be involved in any real estate trader business. Management counts. So to the extent that your hours are management activities, you're going to be fine as one, but I would end up more than likely aggregating those two activities together so that you're not trying to do it for each property. And then on your on your taxes on your Schedule E, you're just selecting that you're a real estate professional. It's actually like a one one little checkbox. And what it does is it makes your passive losses into ordinary losses. Magic, or we call them uh, non-passive loss. So it's non-passive loss that goes and you can use it against all your other income. That's it. It's not any more difficult than that. You just have to make sure that you know what the test is and meet it. There it is, pretty much. I know it's exciting stuff. <laughs> it's like, is- okay, that was awesome. Uh, let's see what time is it, right? <laughs> but we get asked a, a lot about it. So understandably so, I guess. A lot of real estate clients out there. Uh, what is cost segregation? Cost segregation is fancy way of saying you're breaking a piece of property that's real estate into its pieces as opposed to just treating it as one uniform structure. So the best example I can give you is I want you guys just to visualize this for a second. Think of the cutest little house you've ever seen. White picket fence, great backyard, and we're gonna we're gonna walk through it. So let's let's walk up to the white picket fence. We open up the white picket fence, we start walking up this cute little sidewalk, take a look over on on your right or your left, whichever side you have the uh the driveway, and take a look at that new. They they poured some new concrete, or maybe they put in some pavers in the driveway. You walk up to that front door; it's freshly painted, and you open it up, and it's and and this is going to be this is a great little rental house. You smell new carpet, you see all the cabinets are gleaming, all the appliances are brand new, and uh, and it's freshly painted. There's 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 new tile in the uh, in the kitchen. Uh, There's a new deck out back. You walk out back and you see they put in new flower beds and there's some new pitch was put down and they planted a bunch of fruit trees and there's a brand new fence surrounding it. So it's just a great little rental property. And your accountant would probably look at that and say that's 27 and a half year property. In other words, whatever's not land, they're going to write off over 27 and a half years. 
And let's just think about that. Wait a second. The deck's not going to make it that long. The carpet's not going to make it that long. Those appliances aren't going to make. Why are you treating it all as 27 and a half year property when clearly some of this property is not going to make it? And this is where the cost segregation comes in. The IRS will certainly allow you. It's called an impermissible tax treatment. It'll allow you to write off that building over 27 and a half years. Single family resident is residential property. They'll straight line deduction over 27 and a half years. That's what 99% of the accountants do. But you have the choice to opt out of that. You could either do it in year one and do it the right way, which is technically the permissible method, which is to break it into its pieces and say, I'm going to write off the carpeting over five years, the appliances and the cabinets over five and seven. And I'm going to write off the deck and back over 15 year and the trees over 15 years that fences, this 15-year property, land improvement, that driveways, land improvement, and write that over 15 years. In order to get there, you need to do a, a, what's called a cost segregation test, which, which is a, a report, which is what cost segregation refers to, which means having an accountant pop out to the house and break these down into their pieces. And what it usually does is it gives you about 30 to 40%, some cases in manufactured housing, it's up to 80%, of the value of the improvement in year one. It allows you to make huge deductions or at least take 30 to 40% of it and write it off over five, seven and 15 year property. You could choose whether you bonus and accelerate that even further, but at a minimum, it means I'm writing things off over a faster period of time. And then why would you do that? If you have other income to offset, if you're a real estate professional and you don't wanna pay taxes on your W-2 income, if you have a lot of other real estate activities and you have income coming in off them and you don't want to pay tax on that income, then you could cost seg properties and accelerate the loss so that it wipes that out. That's when you're using a cost seg. Very good. Is it more beneficial as an LLC owner to pay myself as a W-2 or a 1099 employee? There's no such thing as a 1099 employee. So I would say depends on how that LLC is taxed. If you are an LLC that's disregarded in your sole proprietorship, you cannot pay yourself a salary. So it's just going to flow down onto your Schedule C as income. And it's going to be 100% attributed uh, income for Social Security. They call it the self-employment tax. You file an actual form SE on your return and you pay, but it's essentially 15.3%. There's a half of it is tax deductible. So the math, I think, is 14.1% right, is what you end up paying on, on is the actual tax bite. If you are an LLC taxed as an S-corp or a C-corp, so it's an LLC taxed as an an S-corp or an LLC taxed as a C-corp, you can pay yourself W-2. And it really depends. Everybody's situation is a little bit different. If you are making, let's say, $100,000 a year uh, net, and you need that money to live off, and uh, let's say that I have the choice between an LLC that's disregarded as a sole proprietorship versus an LLC taxed as a S corp. That'd probably be the category I'd put you in. It's going to save you about seven or eight thousand dollars a year to be that S corp because you could pay yourself a salary out of the S corp, and the profits then flow down, and they are not subject to self-employment taxes. Versus if I am a sole proprietor. 100,000, I don't get to take in a, 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 a W-2, I don't get to take a wage, 100% of the profit is subject to the, the uh, Social Security taxes. So it ends up making a pretty big difference to you if you are an LLC 
to be an S-corp if it's an active business versus your friend, the sole proprietorship, or if you're an LLC with others, better than a partnership is probably going to be that S-corp. But it you know, kind of begs the question, which one's better? I would say it's almost always better to have yourself in the position as an employee because you qualify for an accountable plan. You can reimburse so much stuff and get other tax benefits versus just being a flat out 1099. And the, the correct term is a W-2 employee or a 1099 independent contractor. Very good. Yeah. Anytime you're getting a 1099, if you were getting it from another party, I know you mentioned it, your own business, but take that 1099, throw it into an S corporation like Toby was talking about, have the have the S corporation be the recipient of it, or maybe a C corp, depending on your situation. And you'll be able to take advantage of all those things Toby was talking about, the reimbursements, retirement plan, so on and so forth. Just a much, much better situation either way. Hey, Elliot, can we go back to the previous question real quick? Somebody asked a good question, the cost segregation. Somebody was asking, does time acquiring a new property count towards the, uh, they technically it was the 700 hours. So it was even, it was a question even previous to this one, but uh, I don't remember which, yeah, this one. And I want to hit on this real quick because the IRS says a trader business is construction, development, management. It's not investing. And so for the 750 hours versus the 50% of your time, looking around for new properties would not count towards the 700 hours. If you were in a property flipping business and it was part of the trader business as a whole, like that was just a big part, or you're a wholesaler, they might allow you to count that. But for 90% of y'all out there that are investors, you have to break this down into when am I involved in management and active business versus when am I an investor? And for the first prong, it has to be, I'm in business. I'm in a trader business. I'm either doing a construction, you know, I could be doing construction for third parties. It doesn't have to be on my buildings. I could be a real estate agent helping other people buy properties, but that time does not include my investor, my investor looking around for property activity. I just wanted to answer that one live since I thought, Tyrus, it was a good question. And I saw that in the Q&A. Yeah, excuse just, me, it was Paul, excuse me, that, that, that asked that, sorry. Yeah, I would just add that Toby had talked earlier about this is under section 469C, C7. Actually, if you continue just a little bit farther south, the C7C, that's where the, the code actually lists out the 11 uh, real estate trades or businesses that Toby's talking about. So you can see a whole list of what's what qualifies for a real estate trade or business. So a lot of lot of information in that one little particular section of the of that tax code. And I'd seen earlier there on uh, earlier, John had asked in the w- uh, webinar chat about if they have if he ha- one has to get all seven of uh, the material participation tests. No, you just have to meet one. Mm-hmm. It makes it a lot easier. Here's another one. Somebody says, "What are the steps for a W two wage earner with rental property that I managed to get to be a real estate professional? It's seven hundred fifty hours, and it has to be more than fifty percent of your personal service time. So if you're a W two employee." Your chances are you're never going to qualify because you're going to spend more time on your W-2 unless you're working part-time, in which case then I would track your time. But people have tried it in tax court and they get blown out because they, the courts just won't believe that you, like somebody that has got a full-time job, that they're spending more time on their real estate than their full-time job. They just don't believe it. But I have seen people on a good note, somebody, he also said, I only have a couple properties or I have one property. There is a case where somebody qualified as a real estate professional on one property. They were managing it themselves. 
And that's all they did. But that when you're a W-2 employee for somebody else, it makes it really, really, really tough. And uh, again, the uh, YouTube site here. Yep. Go on in there. Yeah. So some people are asking where the recording for this event will be. It'll be right on my YouTube channel. Click on subscribe and the notification. It doesn't mean they send you anything other than they'll let you know when 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 the uh, videos are uploaded. So when something comes out, it lets you know that's it. So it doesn't spam you or anything like that. But if you subscribe and turn on notifications, then when a new when a new video pops up, it'll say, "Hey, Toby's put a new video out." You go check it out, read the title, and see if you uh, if you like it. One thing I'll just for those of you who are platinum clients out there, so many questions. You'll notice that we've started adding at the end of our answers, links to say our structure and implementation series. Uh, that's a really important part of what we do here is the education branch, learning about how to make sure you're compliant with your, your different entities and things like that. They go through really the A to Z of all of it. So you'll start seeing that. Um, we highly recommend uh, joining into that. We also have some information about links for the funding community. So that's something that you're going to get on your platinum answers just a little bit of additional information, free things to you if you're a platinum client. So uh, check that out too. Hey, uh, somebody asked uh, Mark, he said, how do I search for a cost segregation company in Texas? You can go look around or you can just use one of our referrals. We use Cost Seg Authority. Um, they, have a, they have engineers all over the country. We've used them successfully over many years, doing hundreds of cost segs. And it's free. If you want to have them do an analysis on your property, they can tell you whether they can do it. Patty is sharing out the uh, the link. Hey, Patty, you could share it out. She just sent it to every to uh, to one person, but I would I would share it to everybody. It's absolutely if you come through Anderson, they'll do your your cost seg analysis for free, and they'll tell you whether you know, you look at it and say, hey, is it worth the see if it, if it, if it's worth the squeeze. Somebody says cost seg authority doesn't want to work with you once you sell the home. No access to sold home. They need access to it to do the cost seg. So if you don't have access to it, it's a little tough to do it. A report. So, because yes, you can do cost segs for 2022 all the way up until you file your tax return or until the business files its tax return. So, uh, you know, this is where it really gets cool. If I sold a property last year and, and it benefits me, I just have to have access to it. So, Justin, if you need me to break the uh, break through anybody or push, you know, to smack them around and get make sure that they give you uh, enough time reach out to me or reach out to Patty. We'll make sure it happens because those guys have been great. Cost Seg Authority, Eric Oliver's just been a crackerjack. So if you ever have any issues with those guys whatsoever, reach out to us because I'm sure that they don't they don't want anybody up there out there upset and uh, they want to give you a fair shake. Uh, but if they do need access to that, they do need access to the home. All right. What are some of the creative ways to save money on the gains from real estate investing? Well, if you have other losses or other real estate law or other capital losses, here's some cool ones. Here, I'll, I'll throw some some funky ones out there. Number one, the low-lying fruit, 1031 exchange. Hey, I'm going to keep buying more real estate. So I sold real estate. I have big gains and I want to buy more real estate. Do it through a 1031 exchange and you defer the gain. Number two, you can still do this thing called a qualified opportunity zone if you want to defer some of the gain into opportunity zone, although you would still have gain recognition in 2026 on whatever it is you sold this year. So you're only going to get a few years, but you can do that. What's even more fun is if you have losses like capital losses from other things like crypto or your stocks down, 
I would harvest those capital losses on those to offset your gain from your real estate investing. So if you have capital gain, hey, I made 200,000, I sold a property and you had a bunch of Bitcoin, sell it and buy it right back, right? Sell it, harvest your loss, use that loss against your real estate gain and you can buy it right back. And before you guys say, wash sale rule, wash sale loss rule, no, it doesn't apply to crypto. It does apply to stocks, but there's a way around it. And what you do is you, when you sell, then you buy an in the money call to cover that, that position. And that, that's, that's the same as you uh, buying it back and it attaches to that in the money call, then buy back the shares and then sell that in the money call, which won't move that much. And the loss is attributed to that. And then you get your capital loss. Voila. It's kind of magic, but there's always a tax way to work around these things. So the loss sale loss rule, use an option uh, after you sell to cover that position so that for, for the wash sale and then uh, and then and then buy it back. Somebody says, where can I find a cost seg in Seattle? It's still cost seg authority. I'd still just use those guys. They have engineers in all states uh, yet to find a place that they didn't do it. What other, what else is there out there that you think of uh, to offset the gates? I guess, I guess the, the one I would say, Elliot, because I just asked you a question, I'm going to interrupt you, is if you're selling your house and you have a lot of gain, you can do a 121 exclusion, the, the $500,000 or 250 if you're single to $500,000 capital gain exclusion and couple it up with a 1031 exchange. A lot of people don't realize that you can do both on the same property. So if you're like in a state that, hey, I'm in Austin and I bought a house for 500,000 a few, 10 years ago, and now it's worth, you know, 3 million and, you know, I, I'm selling it, but then I'm going to get killed and gain, turn it into a rental for six months before you sell it. And then you get your $500,000 exclusion and you can 1031 it and go find another property and make it make sure that when you buy that property, it's a rental property, maybe rent it for six months to a year, then you could actually move back into that property too. If it saves you 400, 500,000, it's probably worth it. Absolutely. There's also, we don't talk much about it, but there's also the... Um... Opportunity zones. We're not big fans. I, I I know I'm not. A lot of the 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 benefits of that have long expired, but that does allow you to take capital gains and put them into another investment in a in a specialized LLC for that a partnership. Sometimes in a corporation, but I'm I'm not. There's a lot of other contingencies to that, so you might want to sit down and talk to somebody about what else you have to do for for that type of investment. If they aren't real estate investing, talking about uh, you know rentals and short-term uh, rentals, long-term rentals, and things of that nature, you could look towards what we talked earlier about the cost segregations on your other properties. Maybe you have real estate professional status or something of that nature. So these would be things that would wipe out against your ordinary income first and then come down and hit your capital gains, which would be in your best benefit and how, typically how that works. So... Um, just about anything on your return that we can do to save, even putting into an HSA, could overall impact what's going on with your gains from real estate, not just the capital gains. Uh, the other fun one is just don't sell the real estate, borrow against it and use the those proceeds. Like the, the easiest way to never pay capital gains is don't sell the property, just keep buying more. And then they always say, well, you know, but I need to sell it. I need blah, 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 blah. Sometimes it's better just to borrow against it. See if you can't find a lender that'll that'll allow you to pull money out of one property and accumulate more. Saves you the tax, the transaction costs, and all that. If you're just dead set on selling something, 1031 exchange is the way to go. If you can't 1031 exchange, then you're probably looking at opportunity zones or harvesting losses to offset. 
in our last question, hi, how are crypto gains taxed? When? At time of selling the crypto to give it back to cash, I have been doing short-term trading with my own account. Please advise the best strategies to minimize taxes. Hubby is W-2 and I'm a real estate professional with three rentals. Thank you. This is fun, right? So we're talking about portfolio income. So I, I don't see mining going on here, which is always the sticky wicket. I've had people get all sorts of crazy about mining. It's taxable when you mine. Once you own the crypto, it's when you sell it or when you convert it. And so when I say sell, when you buy something with crypto, the IRS treats it as though you sold the crypto, turned it into U.S. dollars, then used it to U.S. dollars to buy something. So it's a taxable transaction. So how is crypto gains taxed? Just like any other capital gains, you hold it for more than a year, short term, hold it for longer than a year, it's long term. So 365 days plus. And is, is it taxable at the time of selling crypto to convert it back to cash? Yes. Or when you trade it for something else of value. So if I, if I bought a car with my crypto, they treat it as though I sold it and turned it into US dollars and then bought it. I've been doing short-term trading with my own account. Chances are you have short-term capital gains. Please advise on the best strategies to minimize taxes. Realistically, it's going to be the same thing as with any other trading. Uh, you're probably going to want to have an LLC around it, probably a partnership LLC, and you're going to have a corporation own a piece of that partnership LLC so we can push money up to cover expenses and to give us a safety valve on, on some of the income. But if you can get it into a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k, you're, you're, you're golden. If you can get it into a deferred retirement account, you're golden. And sometimes that's what you want to do. Hubby is W-2 and I'm a real estate professional with three rentals. It means that if you really want to lower your taxes on crypto and you're making money, then you probably want to buy more real estate and use those losses, the paper losses from accelerated depreciation. So I would be doing a cost seg. I'd be using bonus depreciation and I'd be trying to wipe out my, my other income as a real estate professional. And I would just add that sometimes when we have clients who have a lot of this, you know, the cryptos and, and stocks that they're trading, that we do have a special uh, structure for that where we have a partnership. You put the, the the trading account into that partnership, and then you could basically partner yourself with it with a C corporation. Uh, that's going to allow you to shift some income off of your return into the C corporation because it can earn a not a management fee, but it's going to be called a guaranteed payment. That puts income into the C corporation that would have otherwise hit your personal return. And now we have all those reimbursements we've been talking about all hour for medical reimbursement, accountable plan reimbursement for maybe a home office or cell phone, and then also corporate meetings. Just another way to, to uh, push the tax savings a little bit higher for you. Yep. Hey, there's a couple questions in here that I want to go to. So unless you have anything else on that one. Somebody says, so cost seg can write off capital gains tax too. Cost seg creates the lifetime of those items. And if you couple that with like a bonus depreciation, you can create a loss. So unlike some things where your, your loss, like a, a, like a 179 can't create a loss, a 168K, which is the bonus depreciation can, and then it keeps its nature. So if I'm accelerating my, de my depreciation on real estate, it means I'm going to have, I'm going to have passive losses. And I can use those against passive income. Capital gains is considered portfolio. It's not. Unless there's a really twisted way capital gains could technically be passive 
if it's through a passive activity like a syndication, then technically you could you could actually have passive capital gains and you could offset it with a cost seg. But I don't want to break your brain today. So what you're looking at is when can I release that cost seg, the type of loss and make it into non-passive loss, then I could use it against capital gain. But most people use it against their ordinary income because ordinary income is usually a lot higher, but you could absolutely do it. Oh, somebody says, if I put the sh- short-term rental in operation, does the bonus depreciation get prorated accordingly? No, it's uh, the uh, bonus depreciation and it gets used as, as long as it's put in service for a day during the year, you get to write it off. All right, go back to the very last slide, Elliot, since you're in charge of the slides. And this is our invitation to you to write in your questions at Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. Elliot's been picking the questions lately. <laughs> um, and so send in your questions so he can he can uh, grab a handful. We usually grab a dozen or so and throw them up here. But we get hundreds of questions over the over the weeks that we will answer. We still have a lot of open questions that we're going to answer. So when we end today, which uh, we're going to do, I might go bust through some of these questions to help our our folks because uh, we have a we have a Tanya, Sergey, Dana, Dutch, Amanda, Jared. Everybody's answering questions right now. They're trying to pump through them, but uh, we might go through some of these. And uh, we're just short of two hundred questions already answered, so they've been doing work. Yep, they've answered almost two hundred questions, but we're going to keep going. So here's what we do. So regarding the crypto, is it considered a sell if you're exchanging one crypto for another? Yes. Make it really simple for you guys. If it's uh, crypto to dollars, crypto to crypto, crypto, there's there's no such thing as a 1031 crypto exchange. So it's just like trading any capital asset for another asset. Somebody says, when you're filing taxes, do you file on behalf of an entity or do you file your own name? It depends on the type of business it is. If you're a sole proprietor, it's going on Schedule C under your own personal return if it's a partnership S corp or C corp, you're filing a separate return and then it flows onto your personal taxes. So uh, it always depends on how that's treated. And guys, if any of this confuses you and you get questions that you want to, uh, that you're like, hey, I'm, I'm a newbie, I'm just getting started out, check out the YouTube channel, go in there and spend some time listening to some of the questions, go to the tax and AP event, reach out to us, we'll sit down and go over some things with you too. Somebody says, can I take Bonus depreciation on a regular rental I put in service September of 2022, not short term. Yes, you can bonus depreciate any personal property so long it was put in service at least a day during the year. And when you're doing a cost seg, you're breaking your property into its structure, the 27 and a half year property versus its uh, the, the other uh, personal property, which is your five, seven and 15 year property. Do you see any that you want to answer, Elliot? I don't want to hobart them all. Under the Q&As, Dana had submitted one probably on behalf of a client, maybe from the YouTube channel. Can you share how uh, the QSBS, that's your qualified small business stock, works for state taxes in in states where there's no exemption? You're going to have to pay taxes. There's no exemption. Uh, Does taxpayer use PALS to offset the state tax? No, those are passive losses. It's not going to connect there. So you would have to look for more either federal deductions that are going to lower your overall uh, taxes that would hit your state, or you're going to have to find, it's very unusual to find something that would be very state-specific for deductions, uh, which I, I can't even think of anything off the top of my head that would be state and not federal. All right. So let's do this, Elliot. I'm going to bust through more answers here so we can get through these because there's a lot of questions. What we're going to do is end the event. 
as far as the live portion. And we're just going to go through and make sure that we're answering questions yeah. for the people that are in there. I'm going to get down to my office and jump in. All right. So guys, until next Tax Tuesday, we will see you. If you have a question, do not leave the event because in order to answer your question that's in the Q&A, we need you to be on. So hang tight. We're going to bust through these and make sure that we're getting them to you as quickly as possible. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 